Well, believe it or not, for three months now, that's how long it's been. For three months now, we've been digging into the Bible in this series that we're calling Unstoppable to see what it is about the church of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes it so unstoppable, regardless of cultural barriers or political climate or even hostility and slander and direct attacks against it. It just lives on. But as we've dug down into the scriptures again to find out more, it's become absolutely clear. It's not because of us. We're not the ones keeping this whole thing alive. It's not men and women called Christians keeping this whole thing alive. And yet it becomes clear. And today I hope you'll see it even more clearly. God still uses us to be a part of what he is doing all around the world. I want to let you know, today's message is going to sound very different than a few weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Colossians chapter 2. And I don't know how many of you remember that. In Colossians chapter 2, it was just one glorious string of indicatives piled on top of another of who God is and what he's done. Not telling you to do anything. Who God is and what he's done. Who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. In fact, I pointed out to you, there were only four commands in that entire chapter because Paul's goal in that letter at that moment was just to stir you up again and remind you, oh, before, before you think of anything you need to do, here's what God's done. Here's what God's done. Don't get over it. But now today, we're going to dig into a chapter that is very different. Same author, Paul, very different tone. In fact, the chapter we're going to dig into today is loaded with imperatives. Third, commands in this one chapter of what he's pressing on us now that we are supposed to do what Christians should do in light of what God has done, which is a good reminder. Let me make this point right here. It's a side note, but it's worth noting. If you want to build a sound theology, biblical theology for your life that leads you to live right for the glory of God, you better keep reading how much of your Bible? Oh, say it again. All of it. Don't ever just pick and choose or sit and soak in your favorite passages. Read all of it. Now, last thing I want you to note before we jump in is the author is Paul, but here's what I think is significant. It is Paul's last letter. Last week, Ryan did a great job showing us Jesus' final words in John 17. These are Paul's final words. Words. Paul, at this point, writing 2 Timothy, is an, a tired old man with a very broken body. He has suffered much for the cause of Christ. And he has taken great risk for the spread of the gospel. But as he pens this, he is sitting in a Roman prison under the reign of Nero... And there is no hope of relief. This is not house arrest like he had earlier in his life with friends coming and going and taking care of. This is prison, no hope of release, and his execution is imminent. What would he want to say? Of everything he could say, what would he want to say to his young disciple Timothy, whom he loves dearly? Turn with me. Let's see it. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. and Find out Paul's final words. 2 Timothy Chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter, but don't take a mental vacation. It's good stuff. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning verse 1. You therefore, my son, 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also... If anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say. And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, The solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, they are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having taken them captive to do his will. Oh, what a great chapter and what a great place to get refocused on what matters most and how to live for what matters most. So here's what I want to do with the time that remains. I want to show you what I think Paul thought. I want to show you what I think Paul thought was the most important things for you to know 
if you wanted to live for what matters most. Here he is, final words to a disciple. Death is imminent. What would he want to refocus us on for us to live for what matters most? And to keep us from getting tangled up and distracted, not just by this world, folks. There is a big distraction in this world, but guess how else our enemy works? Also to keep us from getting distracted and tangled up in Christian silliness and nonsense and bad theology. Both can be a distraction. Here we go. Number one. Paul says, number one, you got to recognize how powerless you are. You've got to recognize how powerless you are. You say, Brad, where are you getting that? Verse one. Look at verse one. You therefore, my son, be strong. How, where? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, this is a theme that Paul just rides through all his letters and his entire ministry, and he never lets up on us. Basically, folks, you got no power. You have no strength of your own. You have no power. The only strength I have and you have as a believer is the grace that we get in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where strength is. That's where you don't just need saving grace that opened your eyes and forgave you of your sins. You need enabling, empowering grace every day to live the Christian life. You can't do it in your own strength. Therefore, consider if that's the case then if your relationship with Jesus Christ is weak or non-existent, then your ability and strength to live out all that God has called us to live out in these last days is going to be weak or non-existent. That's why John said, the apostle John in chapter one, when he was going on about the glories of Jesus, then in verse 16 says, and of his fullness, Jesus's, we believers have all received grace piled on top of grace, piled on top of grace. It's the grace that we're getting in our relationship with Jesus Christ that enables us to persevere and to have power and to say no to our own flesh. That's why Paul himself said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And here's what I think is interesting. The verb tense there, it's in the command and it's in the, it's, it's the passive command that means Keep on doing this. Don't stop doing this. Keep on being strong in the grace. That, in other words, don't just start with that and then reach a point where you think, I got it now. I can do this whole Christian thing on my own now. Never. Keep on being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You've got to have that relationship with Jesus. It's got to be strong. You've got to be tapping in and drinking in a fountain of grace. But notice something else that kicks in. There's something else that kicks in when you actually are aware of keenly how little you can do and that you've got no power. It's verse two. Look at verse two. The things that you've heard from me, these commit to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And be careful, the word there, men, it's not the gender, male gender. It's the word anthropos that means human beings. Here's the deal, folks. When you actually recognize how little you are and how you have no power, you don't try to build a kingdom of one, my own little kingdom. You realize, oh, the best thing I could do is take my gifts, and I'm not even talking money here now. I'm talking, what has God taught you? What gifts has he given you? What is your life's experience? How have you suffered? What trials have you gone through? What is your, is your background? Take all that, and God has people in your sphere of influence that he wants you to pour into, invest in, 
multiply yourself. When you realize it's not all about me building a fan club of how great I am, you'll start saying, who can I invest in? Does it take time? Can it be inconvenient? Can it even be threatening sometime when you see your person you're pouring into be better than you are? It's like, I wanted to help you, but don't be better than I am. There's all kinds of ways you can feel threatened by this, right? But this is the way to go. So let me ask you, you say, if you say, I'm, I'm trying to live for what matters most, then let me ask you, who are you pouring into? Who, who, where's your Timothy? Who are you investing in? Whatever it is you do, how are you seeking to pass this on, recognizing it'd be better that I show three other people how to do this rather than me just be so good at this? Is, this has been the focus of our church from the very beginning, folks. Where I didn't want it to be, oh, Brad Bigney's a great biblical counselor. Everybody that's got problems, go see him. God forbid. (laughs) But it's like my vision from the beginning in my basement with no building was I'm bringing other men and women to sit in my den and watch how I use scripture to help real people with real problems using the Bible. Because this is not rocket science. I'd rather have 40 other people who know how to do it than I just keep doing it and build a fan club. That's how to live your life. Whatever it is that God has you leading a women's ministry or you're a good children's teacher or whatever it is. Think, who can I pass this on to? Who am I pouring into? How am I multiplying myself? When you recognize how little you are, you begin to think multiplication, invest in other people. Number two, notice where else Paul takes us. Secondly, he says, listen, you want to live for what matters most? Stop looking for some kind of spiritual secret of how to eliminate struggle and to get into the zone. Oh, I'm in the zone now. It's not even hard. To, I'm just on a wave of, of God's grace in the zone. There's all those Christians struggling. You don't have to struggle like that. Read my book, Seven Secrets. And why do we buy them? Because you do find yourself thinking, dang, this is hard. This is hard. I struggle. Must be something wrong with me. Nobody else struggles like I do. Shut up. Read your Bible and you realize there's nothing wrong with you. Hey, you say, Brad, where do you get this? Verses three to six. It's like Paul just pulls the pin on a grenade and tosses it in and blows up that whole notion of struggle-free Christianity. There's some version of this that you got to get a hold of that won't be so hard. How, how does he do it? He gives us three metaphors. Soldier, athlete, farmer. You see it in verses three to six? It, it doesn't say couch potato, It's like soldier, athlete, farmer. If you're struggling to put those three together and say, how are they related? Listen to me. All three roles, if you do them well and you do it right, will tax you and tap you out at points. All three of them. He says, endure. Endure as a good soldier. Run as an athlete. Work hard as a farmer. When I think about soldiers... I think about like Navy SEALs. I love to read books about Navy SEALs. It's inspiring to see what they're willing to do on a physical level. We're in a war. And it inspires me to think the stakes are even greater than protecting our country. Let's let's go hard. Let's give. Like with Marcus Luttrell. That's one of my favorites. Lone survivor. Where he tells the story of him and his three teammates being dropped into the mountains of Afghanistan. To take out a target. They become exposed by some goat herders. And they're surrounded by not dozens, 
hundreds of Taliban soldiers with rocket launchers and amazing uh, weapons. And the four of them fought for hours and hours and hours and hours, taking out dozens and dozens, long after everyone else would have said, whatever, we're not going to win this. There's no way just... One of them had his thumb blown off and kept fighting. One of them had his eyes blown out and kept fighting. Just said, turn me in the direction where I should shoot. Marcus is the only one that lived and got out. He tells the story in Lone Survivor. That's what he's calling. See, here's, here's the thing that connects those soldier, athlete, farmer. All three roles will call you to do what you're called to do, not just when you feel inspired. Soldiers, you just say, I'm feeling very soldiery today. Let's do this thing. But on days you're not feeling it, you don't, you're dead. Athletes, especially on an Olympic level, you will not get there if you only do what is necessary to do on days you feel inspired. Christians, listen to me. We got Christians who think they can only do what God calls them to do when they're feeling it. You're fairly useless to the kingdom because there's just a whole lot of days. I'm not feeling it. I don't know about you. Soldiers do it when they don't feel it. Athletes press when they don't feel it. Farmers keep going when they don't feel it. And that's what he points us to. We just had the Summer Olympics, right? I just finished reading the new biography by David Bodai, the Olympic gold platform diver, who also, by the way, loves Jesus. So he titled his book, Greater Than Gold. There's something greater than gold that he lives for. But when you read stories by him and and other women and men who who get to Olympic level, you're just struck by the sacrifices they made. His mom drove him to Indianapolis for years, two-hour drive from where they, to, to train in the basement of an abandoned warehouse that was dark and depressing, to be tied up to strings and trampolines to learn how to do these flips before he even got to the water. Daisy wanted to go. Daisy didn't want to go. His friends are dating girls. His friends are doing fun stuff. It cost him. You say, what about farmer? That's a you know, soldier, athlete. Farmer just doesn't seem that flashy, you know, except for the, she thinks my tractor's sexy, and I think he was wrong. <laughs> Even then, bless his heart, I don't think he's right. But it was a hit. All the farmers bought it. What's going on there? You know what the thing is about a farmer that's similar? They get up early, folks. When they're feeling it, and when I think my allergies are bothering me. Whatever, you're going to die. The crop's... The crops are ready. There are times they work 16, 18 hour days for weeks because it's time. It's time. You don't get to pick when you get inspired. It is time. Be a farmer. Oh, but it's my favorite TV show. Whatever. I got to get out there and do. And here's a word that captures it for us in verse six. Look at it. Hard working farmer. Let me help you. That is not the normal Greek word for work. The normal Greek word for work is ergo. That's not it. Paul used kapio that means to work past the point of feeling like quitting. Past it. To sweat and strain to the point of exhaustion. Now listen, don't hear me saying every day ought to be that way. Do hear me saying, would that ever characterize your Christianity? That there are days or seasons that you push past the point of feeling like quitting. There should be. There should be. You want to you live for what matters most? You want to finish well? There should be. Stop looking for some struggle-free zone. Stop buying books that talk about one. Because this book right here talks about endure, work, fight, when you feel it, when you don't. 
That's what the Bible teaches us about Christianity. Number three, look where Paul goes next. Number three, he says, never settle into a cold, correct doctrine that no longer stirs you. Never just settle into a cold, correct doctrine that no longer stirs you. You say, Brad, how do you get that? Well, notice, I love in verses 8 to 10, he revisits glorious doctrine. He says, oh, Jesus Christ is that one that was prophesied of the seed of David. It all matches the prophecies. He was raised from the dead. He reminds us that God's word has power and is unchained. And then I love this. Two words capture what I'm trying to press on you here. It's two words at the end of verse 8. Look at them. My gospel. Folks, let me help you. He's not being arrogant. He doesn't doesn't think he created the gospel. He owns the gospel. He's not saying he died for you. Here's what he's saying. Even at the end of my life, sitting in a prison, knowing I'm about to die, and I have planted churches everywhere. I have written 14 books of the Bible. I have done three missionary journeys. This is not just for somebody else. It is still my gospel, and it moves me. Listen to me. That better stay true for you and that better stay true for me. The day it always becomes for somebody else now because you've trafficked in it so much and so often. You're just dispensing it to other people. But don't ever let your doctrine get pushed into cold storage that you just pull it out for a good argument. Our doctrine should always be mixed with doxology. Worship. Because see, how, how do you keep it that way? Let me help you also. Towards the end of his life, he said, just go ahead and call me. What kind of sinner? Chief of sinners. When you still see yourself as the chief of sinners, you'll still see the gospel as my gospel. Because you know you need it. Oh, thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for changing me. Thank you for giving me new life. Thank you for empowering me. Thank you for rescuing me. It was his gospel. Folks, if we're going to stay focused on what matters most, just cold, correct doctrine We'll never get it done. Personal, passionate. And that leads to a fourth point that is similar with doctrine. He says this also, dig into your Bible, study your Bible, please. We need more Christians to not just read it. Please read it, but study it, dig in. Here's what I think is interesting from this chapter. And he hits it more than one way. Dig into your Bible and study it. But do not get sucked into useless arguments. Folks, I've been a pastor 30 years. There's a lot of things that break my heart and grieve me and trouble me about Christians and the church. But this is one that bothers me more than most. How quickly Christians are prone to fighting with each other. Over doctrines, listen to me, stay with me. Doctrines that are not primary, that should not be hills to die on. Do not hear me saying doctrine doesn't matter. If you're that person that says, just give me Jesus, don't give me doctrine, I'm going to smack you down in a very biblical way. So doctrine matters. But do hear me saying this. So does unity and love. And we've got Christians starting fights over doctrines that shouldn't be hills to die on. It's interesting. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says, don't strive over words and disputes. And that word strive in the Greek is logo macheo. It comes from logos, word. And listen to this, macho my. What do you think we get from that? Macho. We got Christians chest bumping each other with word wars 
and word fights repeatedly, thinking they're doing the right thing, that every little jot and tittle matters. And of course, I can tell you what I think is right. So now, die, heretic. Good grief. We have enough enemies. We've got more enemies than we've ever had. We're going to have persecution like never before. It's time for Christians to recognize hills to die on and other little hills to say, love that believer. I don't agree, but I'm going to love them. We're on the same team. We share the same love for Jesus. The deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God, is a hill to die on. The inspiration of the Bible, that this is not just some other book, is a hill to die on. The triune nature of our God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a hill to die on. Salvation or justification that it's by faith, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone plus nothing. nothing is a hill to die on along with Martin Luther. But whether or not you speak in tongues is not a hill to die on. Let's please all agree that Jesus is coming back. But exactly when and how and where is not a hill to die on. Whether there's going to be a rapture, and I say no. So the whole left behind is like left behind, wrong. I say we're going to be caught up in the air and come right back down. There you go. But others would say there's a rapture and let's not fight. We got Jesus coming back. Let's agree on that. Never mind the number of Christians that grab other stuff that's not even in the Bible and pull it into the center like school choice or eating clean and go nuts over that and make enemies with other You don't homeschool? Oh. Die, heretic. You still eat fried food? Die, heretic. Read your Old Testament. Please. Please. I'm going to eat shrimp, shellfish. Yes, to the glory of God. And I want it grilled with some lemon on it. If you want to eat clean, eat clean. I'd rather die happy. I may die sooner, but I'm dying happy. Happy. You've missed out on some good stuff. Here's what I think is interesting. The go-to verse on study your Bible, right? And I do love it. Verse 15, look at it. Be diligent. Be diligent. Be approved unto God. Don't be ashamed because you've studied rightly dividing the word of truth. It's the word orthotomeo where we get orthodox. Cut it straight. Danger, as soon as you dig in and start studying hard, the danger is that you will begin to think You understand it so well. Anyone that thinks differently than you on any issue is wrong. Because notice this, verse 15 is sandwiched between 14 and 16 that both say, don't get caught up in useless arguments and disputes and chest bumping with other Christians. Let me show you Paul's fifth thing. And this this is one that I think the Christians who are most focused on just Bible knowledge for knowledge's sake are guilty of ignoring this. Listen to me. If your Bible knowledge that you're gaining, and I hope you are, doesn't, doesn't cause you to become more like Jesus in ways that those closest to you, starting in your home, don't say to you, oh my goodness, you remind me more of Jesus, girl. You're reminding me more of Jesus, husband. You're still not perfect, but I've seen you change. You're more of a servant. You're more patient. You prefer, you put others first. If your Bible knowledge that you're gaining isn't leading to transformation and it's just information, you're doing something wrong. The goal is never just Bible information. It's transformation. And here's here's what the problem is. Very often, Bible knowledge only people have lost sight that your, your own life and your pursuit of holiness and your changing and growing matters. That's why Paul said in these same letters, he said to Timothy, watch 
In, in chapter 4, verse 16, he said, watch your life and doctrine closely. Both. both. Pay attention to both. And so here's, here's how he puts it to us in this chapter. Refuse to make peace with your greatest enemy, your own sinful desires. Folks, another Christian has a different view on sign gifts or end times. Is not your greatest enemy. Even the world out there is not your biggest enemy. Satan's not your biggest enemy. You wake up with your biggest enemy and so do I. It's still this flesh that seeks to deceive me and lead me astray. My own sinful desires. It's the same thing James was telling us in chapter 1 verse 14 and 15. But each one of us are led astray by his own desires and enticed. And here's what I appreciate about what he does in verse 22. He says, flee youthful lust. And don't make the mistake of saying, I hope all the teenagers are listening to that. He's talking to everybody. Because here's the deal. Those lusts that seem to just come alive in your pre-adolescence or adolescence, they don't ever go away. They're youthful lusts that seem very alive at that season. But you better stay vigilant for a lifetime. And he's talking about more than sexual sin, folks. It's the word epithumia. It just means any desire that's strong enough that motivates behavior. And you would just crawl over people to get it. Yes, it could be sexual sin. It could be money. It could be power. It could be selfish ambition, jealousy, envy. There's more than one way to go down in flames. But here's what I love. The word flee youthful lust is the Greek word fuego. From where we get our English word fugitive. He is saying run like a fugitive with the desire to never be caught by your own sinful desires. Stay on the run. The day you stop running and settle in is the day you'll be snared. And it won't be somebody else's fault. It starts with our own sinful desires. But here I got some good news for you. It's more than just running away. Just like so much in the Bible where the Bible teaches in Ephesians 4. Put off and put on. Look what he's doing here in verse 22, the same thing. Run from your sinful desires like a fugitive that never wants to get caught and pursue righteousness, faith, peace, love. The best way to be running from your own desires consistently is to be chasing after something better. And let me insert this. And to chase after it with other believers at close range who also want to run like small groups. Is very helpful. Very helpful. Run. Recognize your your greatest enemy is not somebody else. It's these own sinful desires that I still wake up with. Let me give you an illustration. Have these times where things will happen. I know a lot that's bad. Our church family's big. I'm 53. I have other friends all over. I know so much that's bad. But there's still times that things happen that take the wind out of my cells. And one happened recently. Where a a man that I have looked up to, a man that I respect, a man that is godly, that's taught the Bible and prayed and served and helped. And and he is late in life. He's been loving Jesus and following Jesus 30 years longer than I've been alive. It was just discovered that recently, now he's snared in pornography. Pornography. I was like, oh my goodness, I thought maybe when I got old, I'd be too tired to even want it. No, apparently not. It's like, oh my goodness. And I know it's not true, but sometimes you do think, I hope one day this just lets up, this, this sinful desire. That just sobered me. I just thought, you're kidding. You're kidding. I thought he could barely walk. Now, flee youthful lust. 
take heed, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, you who think you stand, lest, don't ever say, I'm so old now, I don't be, need to be vigilant. No, don't go there. Flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Let me give you the sixth thing that Paul points out. And it might seem like a no-brainer that you th- feel like I, I could just go ahead and finish. And it might seem like a duh, but we bump up against it and butt up against it so often. I think it's intentional that Paul concludes here. Please serve God. Serve God. But don't try to be God. Don't try to be God. You say, where are you getting that, Brad? The last three verses, verse 24 to 26. The last three verses of this chapter, I believe Paul intentionally says, you know what I've seen over and over? You know what I've seen over and over? Christians trying to do what they have no power to do. So let me remind you. And so he summarizes in verses 24 to 26 exactly what God has called us to do and then highlights what you can't do that only God can do. Look at it in verse 24. He says, and a servant of the Lord... Must not quarrel. So be a servant of the Lord. Must not quarrel. Needs to be gentle. These are all things we should do. Able to teach. Please know your Bible well enough to be able to explain to someone why you're saying what you're saying instead of just, well, I I think that's right. No, what's the Bible say? Able to teach. And then listen. In humility, correcting those who oppose. Get this. In these last days, if you choose to believe something... And follow Jesus Christ, you will face opposition. Get ready for it. But he says, be a servant. Be gentle. Be humble. Be able to teach. And then in the middle of verse 25, he says, don't try to do this. You can't. It's this. If perhaps God will grant them what? Repentance. Do you realize Lost people that are stuck in their sin, that are trapped, cannot just repent anytime they want to. Just repent. God calls us to call them to repent, and they actually can't unless God grants them repentance. That'll keep you from getting mad at your friends and saying, What are you stupid? Something wrong with you? Heaven? Hell? Pray the little prayer? Ask Jesus in your heart? Duh. Folks, it's lights out. Unless, that's why you hear so often, because notice what happens next. It says, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. It's a henna clause in Greek that means when this happens and not until this happens, this will follow. When God grants them repentance, they're able to know the truth. And it's the word epigenosis that means to know it personally, experientially. So many of you would have a testimony, I think, that would say, I had heard the gospel. I'd heard Bible teaching. I grew up in the church. But, right, that summer at Young Life Camp or that funeral when I heard, it's like I heard it for the first time. It's like the lights came on. I got the truth. What's going on? Verse 25 is going on. God in his mercy opened your blind eyes, took out a heart of stone, raised you from death and caused you to experientially say, yes, this is true. So pray for your friends. Don't hate them. You'll never argue anyone into the kingdom. Please know your Bible. And then at the end of the day, when you've shared it, and it seems like water off a duck's back, 
get, I think we got too many Christians pressing instead of praying. God has to grant them repentance and it would help you stay more gentle and loving and patient and humble if you also kept in mind, oh my goodness, except for the grace of God, that could be me. God, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for granting me repentance. Thank you for causing me to know the truth because look at all that kicks in then. If perhaps God may grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and come to their senses. Doesn't it seem like sometimes you're talking to someone and you're like, what is, it's like you're in a coma. How do you not see what I'm saying? How do you, they can't apart from the grace of God. That they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who has taken every single one of us. News alert. If you've forgotten, we're born slaves to Satan. Bound to chains of sin. And God in his mercy, if you're here and you're a Christian, broke those chains, rescued you, exploded with light and caused you to know the truth and respond in faith to Jesus Christ. But God did that in you. So pray for your friends, love them, walk humbly, be ready to teach, but don't get angry. Don't yell at them. Don't, don't use slurs and name calling. Be a servant of God, but don't try to be God. Now, let me insert something here because my concern is in a message like this, ooh, you can kind of feel it, right? We make so much here of, it's done, D-O-N-E, it's what Christ has done. You don't have to earn it and achieve it. But here is a message like, ooh, wow, I'm a loser. I'm not, and I only hit six of the commands. We could do two, two more weeks of this and after 13 commands, you'd just be, oh my God, I'm crushed. Listen, listen. Even in a chapter that has 13 commands so that we wouldn't be crushed and think it's all up to us, Paul fastens a few glorious indicatives down in this chapter of marching commands just to remind you, hey, hey, it's not all about you. Look at one of them, verse 13. Look at verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Listen, there are gonna be days or seasons where we fail miserably, where I fail miserably to do some of the things we've talked about, where you're gonna fail miserably to do some of the things we've talked about. He doesn't kick us to the curb. He can't because if you're a believer, he lives in you. Jesus can't deny himself. You're his adopted son or daughter. He will finish what he started in you. He will continue. He loves you and it's unconditional and you may go down and fail on some of these commands I've talked about. His love for you doesn't change at all and he's ready to scoop you up, help you stand up, dust you off and say, now, here we go. If you are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He lives in you and loves you. Well, let me show you another glorious indicative that's fastened down here to give us hope. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. We fall on a regular basis, but just get this. God's foundation stands. And you say, what's he talking about? He's talking about the church. Because in 1 Timothy 3.15, he said, I'm talking about the church, the pillar and ground of truth. Even in the midst of our mess, and our failings and our weakness, so visible to us with each other, God still said, I'm gonna do this work through the church, through my bride. And it's gonna stand. The church is not gonna go away. 
The church is not going to crumble altogether because Jesus said, I will build my church. And then here's what I love. And then the next phrase, the Lord knows those who are his. Listen, is the church a mix? Are there people sitting in churches, even like ours, that you're not a believer? You think you are, but you're not? Sure. But the Lord knows those who are his. And he's going to finish what he started. And speaking of Jesus, let me take you there regarding persevering and enduring. Because here we're looking at Paul, who's exhorting us to endure. But let's look to our Savior. Paul had another letter, Hebrews, that he wrote, that has the same tone and sound to it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And he points us to Jesus as far as how you're going to endure, how you're going to persevere, how you're going to stay focused on what matters most. Oh, don't look to Paul. Look to Jesus who lives in you. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run the race with endurance. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes where? On Paul? On Brad? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It's the same word that he used for us in 2 Timothy 2 to endure as a good soldier. You can endure because Jesus knows how to endure and he lives in you. It's the word hupomeno that means to stand up under a weight and to hold a position. Jesus hung on the cross and held that position and took the wrath of God and your sin and he now lives in you. He will help you endure. He will give you what you need to endure. So Christian, there's your example to look to. Jesus who endured the cross for you and is your great high priest. So when you pray in those hard times, don't be guilty of saying, but he doesn't get it. My small group doesn't get it. They don't even know what I'm struggling with. Your small group may not get it. Your savior gets it. When you pray, he walked this earth. He endured. He knows what it's like to not get entangled with things of this world and stay focused on pleasing his father. And he lives in you. Unbeliever, look to Jesus as your savior. Look how it says, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, endured the cross. It is finished. He's done all the work for you as far as salvation and forgiveness. That's why Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. You put your faith and hope in what Christ has done. All other religions could be spelled do. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Keep this list so that you can earn God's favor. No, no, no. He endured the cross. And has sat down at the right hand of the Father and now invites all to come. 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 